This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, I'm recording. Uh, we're going to talk today about how to get permacultures, permaculture apples into Safeway. Uh, we have about six people from uh, the Kickstarter that's going on right now. I, I, I kind of wonder when this podcast goes public in a few days, uh, we might actually have two days left in the Kickstarter. But um, uh, I guess the, the first thing is, is that um, uh, the Kickstarter is almost to 100,000. Uh, we, it's at 94,000 right now. And uh, uh, I'm, it's been a wild ride. It, it, this Kickstarter is performing better than any Kickstarter we've ever had to date. Um, it's been so, so exciting. Uh, and I think that the number of stretch goals right now is something like, what, 15 stretch goals, 16 stretch goals. Um, but uh, the people that are on the call now are the people that have supported the Kickstarter at the $65 level or higher. Um, uh, hopefully you guys are happy with all the, the, the stuff. Is there, is there enough stuff yet? Do we, do we have to get more stuff? So we get more stuff. You guys can unmute and say whatever it is you want. I like um, what I got, but I'll always take more. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. We're, we're working on it. <laughs> we're getting more. Yeah. Uh, we, it seems like Mike and I are in talks with a whole bunch of different people to try and line up the next stretch goal. We have uh, a mega author that uh, we're, we're talking to right now, and it's just that the conversation is just going really slow as the mega author is currently traveling. And uh, it's like, wow, that would be amazing to get that book added in as a stretch goal. Um, How many people are still left to go up to $65 to get to that super goody package? There's like... There's like uh, 1,200 people, 1,300 people that are below $65 that have backed the Kickstarter. So it's lovely that they've backed the Kickstarter. Um, uh, I just kind of feel like, uh, I don't know, maybe are we not dangling enough candy in front of them? I kind of I kind of feel like the level of candy is pretty massive. I mean, the uh, the 15 or 16 things are, are big, big, big things, I, I think. But... Uh, <coughs> Each person has their own tastes. Um, I want to talk about the Kickstarter for hours and hours and hours, but today's podcast is supposed to be about how to get permaculture apples in the Safeway. So this is one of those podcasts, which I've gotten some feedback where uh, quite a few people like this format, and it's like it's something that I wrote a while ago. I recently learned that I never mashed this into a podcast. I've probably got like 30 more little articles that I wrote on a whim and never mashed them into a podcast. And uh, I have, like some people on Permies have changed their signature to link to this article to say, this is how I live my life. 
um, which I'm not even sure it's an article that's about how to live your life, but apparently this article has been something that people have found to be, uh, I guess, profound. <clears throat> profound enough to make it into their their signature for all of Permies. Um so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read bits, and then we all have a chance to talk about it. And the people that are in the call with me uh, are welcome to either turn on their microphones and talk or leave something into the chat, and we'll work it in, and things like that. Um, we do happen to have Alan Booker on the call for a little bit, and uh, I am looking forward. Alan, have you already read this article? It's been a long time. I think I read it uh, several years ago, close to when it came out. So I, ha- I have not had a chance to review it since then. I suspect, and I feel like I know you pretty well, uh, I suspect that you agree with this article or or you like it. Listen, that might be an easier thing to commit to. You like the article. <laughs> True. Yes, I think uh, I'll have to go back through it, and, and uh, as we go through it, I'll, I'll get to remember. And, of course, you know, I think there, it's important we're constantly learning, so I'll probably bring new insights to it now, hopefully, than when I read it a couple of years ago, because um, I'm constantly trying to, you know, learn new things. So maybe I'll have new thoughts this time. Okay. Uh, uh, let's get started. Yesterday, I was giving a tour to the PDC students, and we were talking about the apple trees growing here. Somebody asked about getting apples into the local grocery stores. Um, I remember the moment, uh, and, and I was pointing to an apple that was started from seed, and, I, and I, that, that particular tree at that time was probably a foot and a half tall. Uh, since then, that apple tree was destroyed by children. Um, some children came by, and they were – playing on the berms, and they fell down and landed on the tree and broke it off at the base because uh, it was still young. It was still a little tiny tree. So that tree is gone. That's the way it goes. And when you start, when you have thousands of trees growing from seed and, and some kids bump one off like that, you don't get as weepy as something where it's like, I paid $50. I dug this giant hole. You know, so it's like, yeah, we got plenty more trees where that came from. No worries. <clears throat> All right, so somebody asked about getting apples into the local grocery stores. I felt that this was a legit level two question. How do how to do business the way that other apple growers are doing business? How to compete with them and possibly outcompete them? How to do so profitably? Right. When I say level two, is there anybody who doesn't understand what I'm saying, what I, what I mean by that? I mean the Wheat and Eco scale. It's got levels zero through ten. Um, I, I'm sure I made a few podcasts about it, but is there anybody who doesn't understand? Like, do I, do I need to make a quick explanation of that? Just that it's sort of low on the scale. You might be, I think, recycling and... Maybe you have a little bit of a garden, but you're not doing too much else, right? Um, I, the idea is is that uh, it's a reverse logarithmic base 10 scale. And uh, and I love saying that. Alan can check my math. <laughs> uh, but the uh, uh, the key is is that there's uh, several billion people at level zero, 
there's um, 1 billion people at level 1, 100 million at level 2, 10 million at level 3, etc. And when you get to level 10, there's one person. And I have elected to put Sepulchre there. <clears throat> and then, basically, uh, each each level uh, gets closer to being more eco. Um, and uh, uh, an example that I give is that at level zero, a person will spray dandelions. At level two, a person will pull dandelions. At level four, uh, a person will eat dandelions. At level six, a person will uh, trade dandelion seeds with their friends to get the greatest, the best dandelions, to grow the best dandelions. Kind of helps to show the different kinds of levels. Um, I also kind of feel like most of the world believes, like like most of your environmentalists and people that love eco stuff, believe that the scale ends at three. Like the most eco people in the world are level three, and there is there is no level four. Um, and uh, uh, then there's the two observations. Uh, the first observation being, uh, and I and I have to say that I disagree with, you know. Like, I agree that the observation exists, but I, I disagree with the people that make these observations. So I observe that uh, for wherever a person is on the eco-scale, anybody that's lower than, than them, they have this passion about how those people are fucking everything up and need to be uh, scolded or hit with sticks or shamed or something like that. <clears throat> and so I'm thinking that's not okay. The other observation is is that people that are one level ahead are cool. People that are two levels ahead are super cool. People that are three levels ahead are crazy. People that are four levels ahead are so crazy they should be institutionalized for their own safety and the safety of those around them. So I also feel that that's errant. A lot of times we see people that we think are crazy, and it, later it turns out to be that they were just further ahead on your own scale. Uh, I, I, I believe I have many podcasts going into a lot more details about that, but there's a, a quick summary of the wheat and ecosystem. So <clears throat> I'm saying I, I felt this question about how to get apples into a local grocery store is a legit level two question. Um, I I first felt myself get frustrated that the question is sort of loaded to be level two, and I wish that the question was more level five. I directed this guy to watch the Broken Limbs movie and pointed out how nearly everybody cannot get their apples on the shelf without the middleman. So I picked the student and called him the middleman. I then described how he works with 40 growers, scrapes the natural wax off, applies the petroleum wax, puts stickers on the fruit, and then sells the fruit to lots of grocery stores. Without all that, the grocery stores generally don't want to talk to you. Uh, We then talked about how a lot of times food shelf life is connected to how fungus and bacteria did not see that as food. But if you're going to go through the many phases of shipping, you cannot do it with fruit that has a short shelf life. And some of the tastiest and most nutritious food has a short shelf life. Now, at at this point, I think I brought this up in a fairly recent podcast. 
the whole thing about long uh, food shelf life and how uh, uh, other fungus and bacteria say that's not food, so they're not going to eat it, and that's why it has a long shelf life. I believe I recorded a podcast, like somewhere around podcast number 105 or so, with Sally Fallon Morrell, who believed that the opposite was true. Food that is more alive uh, is something that uh, is going to have a longer shelf life. Alan, is this something you know anything about? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, it, and it turns out to be kind of an interesting thing um, that it's, it's sort of an inverted bell curve, uh, as far as I can tell. If a, uh, if a, if a, uh, a bit of, we'll call it food or a food artifact, um, has almost no nutritional value whatsoever, then, okay, not much is going to come after it. Um, on the other hand, if it gets into sort of the moderate range, um, now it is, uh, everything wants it, including things very, very low on the trophic scale which would include uh, bacteria, um, fungi, molds, um, and uh, lower insects. But as you begin to get the BRICS level of a fruit up, um, it has a combination of sugars and plant secondary metabolites in the leaf and also in the fruits. And um, these uh, make it more difficult for the bacteria, the fungi, and the uh, pest insects to be able to uh, metabolize them. So there has been, like, for example, uh, in Australia and parts of New Zealand, there have been grocery stores now that are actually specifying high bricks fruits and vegetables from suppliers because, not because they're more nutrient-dense, which they are, but because they have a longer shelf life. And so that's been shown. So it's sort of like if you have no nutrient for anything to attack, like, let's say, white uh, bleached bromated flour that sits on the shelf, there's just basically nothing there for anything microbial to attack, and it'll sit there for basically forever. On the other end, if you have a very nutrient-dense, very high bricks, um, plant, uh, you know, either the leafy parts or the, the fruiting parts, then that's going to eventually succumb, but it's going to have a longer shelf life than something that's in the middle that is just got enough goodies to be interesting to everything, but not enough, uh, in the way of sugars and secondary metabolites to hold them off for a while. So I believe what you just said is yes. And uh, the story is much ri richer than a simple Boolean thing. Correct. Yeah. Uh, that is, that is magnificent. And I, I, I really enjoyed the part about, uh, how the, the bricks kind of plays into what Sally Palmer, uh, Morrell was referring to. Yeah, there's some unpublished research, um, from some grad students that I'm familiar with that never got published in which, um, they looked at this whole question of bricks and nutrient density because technically all that bricks really tells you is the amount, the percentage of dissolved solids in the sap of a, of whatever you're doing. You can look at the, the sap of a leaf or you can look at the juices of a fruit and it tells you the bricks is a percentage of dissolved solids, most of which are typically going to be sugars, 
but there are other things. And one of the bits of research that they were doing was to figure out whether it was actually true that a higher bricks uh, in a leaf or in um, a uh, fruiting body was indicative of higher nutrient content. And it turns out, although they never got to publish this result, that what they were beginning to see was that when plants didn't have all of the nutrients they needed, that they got greedy and stored a lot of what nutrients they had, immobilized and not in the sap, and that the bricks was low. But that they only went to a super high bricks, let's say above around 10 or 12 in the leaf, when they were in a state where they had enough nutrients that they could get their secondary metabolites moving, and then all of a sudden you saw the bricks in the leaf was able to go up. And this was indicatory of the fact that there were enough of the nutrients in the plant for them to be able to uh, activate all their metabolic pathways. And therefore, there was something of a correlation between high bricks and high nutrient density in the food, especially if you were measuring the bricks in the leafy body, not in the fruiting body. I suspect that it's also going to be an indicator. And and it's like, we talk so much about nutrition, but at the same time, I, I kind of want to work in a shout-out for flavor. And I, I kind of feel like uh, there's a whole world uh, where it's like flavor is 20 times more important. And, in fact, it's a much larger world, I believe, where flavor is 20 times more important than nutrients. And this is these two things go hand-in-hand. Hand. Uh, usually when you've got a higher bricks count, you're also going to get much stronger flavor, which – Sometimes um, could be a bad thing. Like, like, wow, that is some powerful spinach right there, buddy. That is, that is some spinach that's going to kill people. But yeah, on the other hand, let's people. think about, let's talk about a peach or a raspberry. Now you've got some powerful magic in your hands. Yeah, yeah. Bricks equals flavor because low bricks equals watery. Uh, wateriness. Basically, it's just water with almost no dissolved solids, including no dissolved sugars and no dissolved phytochemicals and so forth. And uh, this also comes down to another question we'll probably hit later, which is that a lot of these super sweet things that we have continued to breed out cultivars are super sweet with no other flavor also tend to have sugars and no other phytochemical complexity and therefore tend not to be as healthy for us as some of the wilder progenitors that have more complex flavors. Those flavors equal phytochemical phytochemical density that our bodies can use as part of the immune system and uh, as nutrient. Okay. Um, I'm going to move on with the article, unless anybody's got any other comments up to this point. All right. Uh, I pointed out how there was one guy in Broken Limbs, that movie called Broken Limbs, that would take his apples to a local organic grocery. They would sell it as is without the de-waxing, re-waxing, stickering, etc. And they tried to short the guy on price when he rolled up with a fresh load. And the guy said, fuck it, I'll just feed these to my pigs. And the store said, wait, 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 wait. And then it turns out they really can pay the agreed on price. People were asking specifically for his apples. 
I think a better question is, how do I make more money selling permaculture apples? There are then two very important paths to explore. One, making more money for one person that is growing permaculture apples. Or two, how to feed the world permaculture apples and all of the apple growers get Epic Coin. All right, so... This guy, uh, he was getting more money per pound by just getting a bunch of boxes, putting them in his truck, and going over to this organic store. So he's probably already going into town to do a bunch of stuff, and it's kind of like, yeah, you know, I'll go ahead and throw a bunch of boxes in the apps. Now, the, the great thing is is that this guy was, was doing a, a permaculture thing, and this movie, which is a magnificent movie, and it's available for free right now. Uh, we've got a link on Permies. And so, I don't know, uh, Mike, can you pull up that, that link that's a little further up? Uh, it says, that I direct this guy, what, yeah, so when you go to that, then uh, you'll see that we've embedded the whole movie right into this thread at Permies. And it is, not only is it a great movie, but I believe it's an important movie that I think everybody needs to see. You need to understand the, the, the key messages in this movie. So, to try to, to give a, a quick summary of the movie, it starts off with like uh, it's it's in Central Washington, the you know like where most of, I, I think like something like forty percent of all the apples in the United States are grown in this one little region, um, and it talked about how so many of the apple growers are going bankrupt, including the the, the guy making the movie. It's, his dad was struggling, and so it's a movie that's kind of about his dad and kind of about all these other growers. And they are crazy struggling, whereas before they were they were doing great. And it's kind of like, well, why are they struggling? And they go into it. And about halfway through the movie, you're kind of thinking like, yeah, these apple growers, they're just fucked. It's, it's just over. It, it, there's nothing they can do. They're boned. It's this is this whole industry is collapsing. And so, sucks to be them. The second half of the movie kind of starts off visiting different people who decided to to you know, like like one of them was their their land, their orchard is about to get repoed by the bank. And they're just living life right on that edge. And it's like, come on, crop, you know, be a bumper crop so we can get a little bit ahead. And a hailstorm came and obliterated their crop. And so they took all this hail damage, all these hail damaged apples, they put them in these giant boxes and they took them to Seattle. So, like, I don't know, four hours away to go to Seattle. And uh, they took them there, to, and they hit the farmer's market, and they sold them for cheap. But the thing is, is they sold them for cheap at the farmer's market, and they sold them all. But that price per pound that they were getting was still, like, four times higher than what they would have sold them for if the apples had been perfect to the middleman. And so it's it's like, so in the end, they were like, we made more money than if we sold it to the right, the middleman that we usually sell to. So we, we had a, we, we had crop damage and we had our best year ever. So it starts there and then, and then it goes up and up and up and each person is coming up with a more creative idea. And then the, the, the person that's the ultimate is the permaculture farmer. And so this guy, he's got like a few apple trees and they're giant apple trees. And basically, whatever falls on the ground, his hogs eat it. 
And so uh, he's got systems upon systems upon systems. And, and sure, it's like, oh, I'm heading into town today. Why don't I go snag a bunch of those apples and put them in the box, in the boxes, and I'll drop them off. And they'll give me a couple hundred bucks for the load. You know? Oh, quick cash. Easy peasy. He didn't spray the tree. He didn't prune the tree. He didn't do anything like that. He just snagged a bunch of apples, put them in the boxes, and threw them in the truck, took them to town. That was it. He, he didn't do any other work. Whereas most of these other growers are, like, doing this enormous amount of work, including, like, eight rounds of spraying every year. Okay. So, uh, um, back to the document. Uh, two ways. One, making more money for one person that is growing permaculture apples. Two, how do you feed the world permaculture apples? And all of the apple growers are getting at the coin. So, so for number one, we can talk about polyculture apples being uh, better flavor and nutrition. So kind of like what we were talking about earlier. And getting more dollars per pound. We can also talk about offering them for sale on your property rather than driving them somewhere. So less expense. We can talk about people coming to the property for other reasons and eating the apples, such as like uh, 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 bed and breakfast, Airbnb kind of stuff. We can talk about what SEP does and how people pay lots to come onto this property and they think the food and water there is a bit like the fountain of youth. Uh, much more to say in this. So, of course, Sepp Holzer, uh, he has apples, and he has all kinds of fruit and vegetables and stuff like that. <clears throat> and he basically, rather than selling food, which is, of course, can, can be a very complicated legal space, he offers tours to people. And so uh, uh, it's something like 95 euros a head, which I don't know. It's like maybe 120 bucks a head. And there's like 100 people a day. And he lets them onto his property and he shows them around. And then uh, he says uh, at the end of the tour, he's in the middle of his property. And he says, okay, you guys show yourselves out. Bye-bye now. And uh, they kind of cruise around grab some food. That's it. Um, it. And it's like, so, I mean, if it's, there's 100 people, uh, he just he just put ten thousand dollars in his pocket uh, for that one day, and they grabbed their own food. I don't know. That seems like a pretty great business model, and it's not exactly a direct thing. I mean, we're not talking about getting permaculture apples into Safeway so much. We're talking about how to get more money for permaculture apples. For number two, we can talk about how people keep selling their apples to the warehouses which process the apples and resell them. We can talk about systems where we dramatically reduce the cost growing the apples. We can talk about how all of the other farmers do similar things and the systems in place get reformed. I can say more here, but I think this whole conversation takes a back seat to number three. It seems a bit silly that somebody will get in their car, drive four miles to a grocery store, and buy apples that came from 400 miles away when there were perfectly ripe apples growing in their own yard or, or the yard next door. 
And then some people just don't feel like eating an apple. They want cereal for breakfast, pizza for lunch, and Mexican for dinner. They might go more than a year without eating an actual apple. Maybe see it as something that poor people or hippies eat. After all, an apple costs about a dollar. A piece of apple pie costs four dollars. And an apple tart served at a fancy restaurant costs twelve dollars. So we can start to talk about hyper-local permaculture, where people cut their driving to grocery stores and restaurants in half because within two or three blocks, maybe even right next door, there's food available at a little produce stand or a teeny tiny restaurant of sorts. Of course, the income from that would be small and the government would be pissy. But let's use Mr. Rogers' land of make-believe to forget about the government for a bit. I think a big slice of the permaculture dream is a reaction to a human need for safety. Okay, I'm going to go into this here in just a second. But do we have any comments about this thing about one, number one, number two, and number three? So it's like, number one, you're trying to get more money. You're just, a, you're, you're just going to sell those apples, and you're going to try and get more money. Number two is to continue to be part of the system. And number three is to explore ideas about hyper-localism. Hi, it's, uh, it's Diane. I'm going to chime in on this. Um, I think with the pandemic and the shortages, a lot of people sort of opened their eyes to see how our uh, extended supply chain doesn't necessarily work that well. So I think it is a good time for um you know, local, I know the CSAs around here all sold out. Um, farmers markets, when they were allowed to open, were there was just a deluge of people. So I do think that somehow that awareness might be hitting folks who never would have had it otherwise. Okay. Uh, Alan. Yeah, and Diane, thanks for that. I was about to say the the thing that I'd like to point out here, just kind of backing up, would be that um, what Paul is doing here in this article is an, is an excellent illustration of permaculture thinking. In that there's a, a human reaction. Somebody asks you, well, "How do we get these apples in the safe way?" The reaction for most people would be to attack that question instead of backing up and asking, "Is that the right question in the first place?" In other words. It's, it's easy to get stuck in this blinder of the fact that most of us have grown up in a culture in which um, that's the assumption, that food comes from the grocery store, that is the way reality is, instead of backing up and asking, is that the way that we should design the system? And so by backing up and, and basically asking questions about the underlying assumptions about how food is gotten, um, that this has allowed for a much deeper and broader analysis of the whole question other than just how do we take and get some, quote, permaculture grower to be able to attack this system that's designed very poorly to be able to get – it's not designed to get healthy 
food to people efficiently and to ask a whole different set of questions um, about how do we provide people with what they need in a way that makes sense without being stuck in that narrow viewpoint. I want to um, <clears throat> first uh, uh, back away from the word should. Um, so you, you, you threw in the word should. I'm, I'm going to back away from that a little bit. And, and then you also said uh, something about attack the question. And I kind of feel like I, I like the idea of, of, of answering the question. And rather than uh, either the attack or the should, I, I instead want to say I, I want to add to the conversation. I, I wish to paint a picture. Please allow me the opportunity to paint a picture of something richer and more. I, I do think that if a permie wants to play the commodity apple market, that, that they could do that and have a huge advantage. So like they do everything that the other apple growers do in order to, to take mountains, like semi truckloads of apples to the middleman and possibly get 12 cents a pound um, for that. But at least they've they, they, they have eliminated a bunch of their expenses along the way so that their margin is, is much fatter. But I, I kind of feel like anybody who's contemplating going down that road I, I wish to, 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 to go down the path exactly what you're suggesting, Alan, and, and have a conversation with them. Hey, can I just, uh, just a thought, you know, can we talk about something that might pay even better or uh, even, even more than that? And I think, you know, where we're about to go here in a moment is like, can we explore a path where you end up richer, but there's no money even changing hands? Um, but a lot of times, I, I, Alan, I want to ask you this question, and, and it's, it's very much related to what we're talking about. <clears throat> when people first hear the word permaculture, their, their very first thought, their very first impression, their very first whatever about it, as they start to embrace it, like the first week, it's all about like, can I make more money with permaculture? Because if I can't, I don't want to touch it. But, but can I, and then I kind of feel like as we get further down the, so the first answer is yes, you definitely can make more money with permaculture techniques. Then as you get further down, then, uh, it's like, I, I like to think that people learn that, uh, it's, it's like you can eliminate an, a, a massive amount of your own personal expenses. You can find a higher quality of life. There's so much more that, that you could do that that next thing you know, the pursuit of money kind of fades away. Do you do you is this your observation this is my observation. Is it also your observation? I, I've I've seen people come into permaculture through different doors. One of them is definitely on the the the, the idea of you know, can't make me money. Another one is a certain number of people I've seen come in the door thinking the systems that we've set up today are incredibly, incredibly long supply chains and incredibly brittle, and therefore they feel insecure and they're looking for more security. And then there's a whole other group that comes in the door that I've seen that come in basically saying, I have chronic degenerative 
disease problems or my children do. And this whole system of food, I'm, the more I'm researching it, the more I'm realizing that it's probably at the root of this. And I'm looking for an alternative. I'm looking for an answer to that. So I've seen all of those, you know. Um, so I see, I, I see a mix of all, all of those uh, things for people coming in the door and asking me about, you know, permaculture. This makes me want to ask you another question. It's another one where I want to hear your opinion, and, and I'm going to start by assuming that you have a Whole Foods in your region. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. So um, would you say that a permit could grow food that is, like, I want to take – I want to uh, – you, you brought up the, the fact that there's there could be somebody – there's somebody – there are people with ailments. Do you believe that there could be a permaculture site in the United States that's growing a bunch of food and for oh, – I'm going to make up a number. Uh, maybe 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 I'm going to make up a number and I'll see if your number is different than mine. 80% of the population suffering from some form of ailment could go to that site and their ailment would go away. And these, and all of these people, 100% of these people are currently getting all of their food, all of it from Whole Foods. They're being very careful to get only the most nutritious food that they can get at Whole Foods. And then we, in fact, I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to twist my question even further. 100 people get 100% of their food from Whole Foods. And I want to take those 100 people, and they all suffer from some sort of ailment, and I don't know what it is. But I take all 100 people to this fictitious permaculture place, polycultures, hugelcultures, uh, bricks, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to say for 80 of those people, their, their ailment goes away. Do you agree with the number 80, or do you have a, a different number? Um, I guess the way I would, I would characterize it is this. For me, you know, I'm an engineer, and just guessing at numbers is hard for me. What I would say is this. <clears throat> My experience is that, you know, I, I have to, there's a Whole Foods here. I have to go there occasionally because where I am in Alabama, there's certain kinds of things I can't source non-chemically anywhere else. Um, and uh, some of the things like that I'm not able to just don't have the time to grow myself. But here's what I would say. What I'm finding at uh, Whole Foods is generally what I would characterize as industrial organic. Right. And industrial organic would be things that are officially labeled USDA organic. And when I see that label, to me, it is more of an indicator of what is, of what is not in the food than what is in the food. True. It, that, that to me, industrial organic says, okay, this is not a GMO. Uh, this does not have certain types of toxic gick on it. The gick that they're allowed to use is a little, little bit less toxic, and, but they're still allowed to use certain forms of organic gick that, that um, the, the industry has managed to bamboozle the USDA into letting them use. Um, so if I have to buy, if I have the choice between Non-organic and organic, okay, I'll choose the organic because I get less toxic gick. But the way that a lot of these crops are being grown in these industrial organic systems does not dramatically improve the nutrient density of the food. 
So if you're talking about a permaculture site where there is care being given to biological cultivation of food crops to create nutrient-dense food, then I would say it is my experience that anyone who has a chronic degenerative disease, 100% of them will see at the least an, an improvement in their condition. A considerable number, probably a vast majority, will see a significant improvement and a very good subset may see a complete subsidence of that merely by getting the nutrients that they need into their diet. Um, of course, it would be helpful to make maybe make a few other changes, like getting other toxic gick out of the way and, you know, getting some fresh air instead of sitting behind a computer all the time and some other things like that. But just the one dimension of going to nutrient-dense food in my um, experience from dealing with people who have chronic degenerative diseases and, and ha- having discussions with them about uh, their, you know, food and how to get their food. I would say that the more nutrient-dense that you can get the food, the more likely that your body is to be able to correct the imbalances that cause many, many of the chronic degenerative diseases. And that I would suspect that 100% of the people who were able to get that food would see improved quality of life. And it would vary from person to person as to how much of that, you know, whether it was a 50% recovery or 100% recovery or a 30% recovery, it would vary from individual to individual because some of those chronic degenerative diseases uh, do have other root causes. True. True. Um, what I, you know, and I feel like what I heard from you was 60. <laughs> Um, that, that, but, uh, one of the things you said is that, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to put a number on something as an engineer. I kind of, I am also an engineer. I kind of feel like, um, putting magic numbers on things is part of the ways in order to be able to move forward because you need to, uh, come up with a design to perform your testing on. And of course you want to try and, and, uh, get it right if you can the first time. But of course, you know, and then later test and then later optimize. Um, I I feel like I'm very comfortable with um, effectively what is oftentimes referred to as pulling numbers out of your ass. I will I will do this a lot myself because it's kind of like okay, here's what I believe, here's what's in, here's what I am feeling, thinking, whatever, and then of course you qualify the statement by saying this is not a this is not a proven fact. This is my own personal speculation based on the knowledge set that I have at this time. And so I'm, therefore, I don't know, I, I, because I qualify the number as such, I can use these numbers. And then when getting together with several other people, each person could put out different numbers based on their knowledge set. And then we can get an idea of like, wow, if my number is radically different than yours, Maybe I'm missing something in my knowledge set, or maybe you are. Now you're, you're trying to make an informed estimate. Um, yeah, and I can I can appreciate that. I'm I'm just very um, I'm hesitant to try to put exact numbers on an on an informed estimate just because somebody's going to come back along behind me and and quote me on it as if it were a, 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 a you know claimed a claim. Sure. Um, out of context. So, yeah, out of context. So I try not to do that, um, but I, I 
I appreciate your willingness to do so. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. I'm going to uh, – anybody have any other comments about everything to this point? Uh, nope. Okay. So here we go. When you spend any time understanding the world's problems, you get that horrible feeling of, that could happen to me, followed immediately by, how do I add safety to my life so that won't happen to me? The first piece is, if I had a million dollars, I could make safety for me. In time, I think most people start to come to the conclusion that that is a poor type of safety. You would need to buy just the right things, and without knowledge, you could buy the wrong things or, or not install the right things correctly. Then, as you start to learn all the things to make the million dollars be safe, I think, and I'm sure a few billion people uh, will have uh, different thoughts, all roads lead to permaculture and homesteading. So, as we're exploring food systems, especially apples and Safeway, I mean, part of it is, is that it's like a lot of this, we're, we're kind of talking about, like, I'm going to grow apples and I'm going to sell them for money and now I have money and now I can buy my safety. Um, at the same time, if you're not growing apples, then you're buying apples and then it's like those price, the price of those apples could go way up if your only source for apples is the grocery store. And then we kind of introduced the idea of maybe somebody in your neighborhood has an apple tree and you can get some apples from them. All right. If a person has a head full of homesteading and permaculture, a solid home, their energy needs are itty-bitty, and they're growing four times more feed than they could ever eat. And they have $4,000 in the bank and $10,000 hidden under the banks. Maybe that person now has more safety than the earlier person with a million dollars in hand. All right. Uh, anybody... Anybody got any comments about this part so far? We're kind of trading money for knowledge. The stuff in your head would buy safety. Not only that, but the concept of a humble home, big garden, and a little bit of coin in the bank is better than having a million dollars. All right. Yeah, I was just going to comment here. You're basically talking about different forms of capital, right? You're talking about things like um, non-monetary cap forms of capital, including real estate, um, genetic capital, uh, real capital, and so forth. And, and the reason that you know, historically in society you've been told to go for the money is because that the idea is that money is fungible, that you can exchange money at any point in time for anything you want, and therefore Money is one of the most, the idea goes, money is one of the most high leverage forms of capital. If you want an apple today, you can go buy it. If you want, you know, uh, a guitar tomorrow, you can go buy it, provided you have money. But, um, and, and that, of course, 
uh, is always assuming that the monetary system is stable and that the markets are available and so forth, uh, and that high-value food is even purchasable, which in many areas, uh, I think that's a dubious question. Can you actually buy high nutrient density food in many areas, no matter how much money you have? And my experience is that's a very iffy question. <laughs> Debatable at best. Yes. So this podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.